Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be talking about Homer. And no, it's not the Simpsons character, Homer. This is the ancient Greek writer who wrote the Iliad, the Odyssey, and several lost books, which would have completed this series. But, you know, we don't have those, and uh, it's a big loss to civilization. But the reason Homer is important for any biblical study is just, number one, to figure out how language is used. You know, what kind of phrases are attributed to, let's say, Zeus within the Iliad, the Odyssey, and then within the works of Hesed. Hesed was a writer about the same time as Homer in about 650 to 750 BC, and he wrote along the same lines, the same mythology as Homer. But how did they speak about Zeus? In what manner? What were the legends about? And do we see any parallel concepts or phrases attributed to Yahweh in the Bible? And then after that, when the Calvinist reads Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey, do they, when reading about Zeus in the same terminology, attribute the same ideas that they would have attributed to Yahweh if they read the exact same phrase? This is an exercise in intellectual integrity. This is an exercise in the fallacy of special pleading. Do they just assume their theology onto the text, or do they prove it from the text? Do they read other authors with the same phrases, the same style of thinking, in different ways because of their theological biases? The second reason Homer is incredibly important to a study of the Bible is because around the time of Jesus, the philosophers, even Platonists, Neoplatonists, they looked back on the works of Homer and they said, obviously Homer doesn't mean what he wrote. All these stories about the Greek gods warring and fighting uh, they're all false. Uh, they are not describing actual events. Instead, they're symbolic, they're metaphorical, they mean something else. They're not saying what it looks like they're saying. And Porphyry, a pupil of Plotinus, remember Augustine was a pupil of Plotinus. He read Plotinus and incorporated a lot of Neoplatonism into his beliefs. Porphyry did the same thing that Augustine did with the Bible, except for Porphyry did it with Homer. And there's a long tradition of this, well before the third century AD. You have authors that are reinterpreting Homer and pacifying the passages, reinterpreting them, making them symbolic, just creating an apology for Homer's work. So let's talk a little bit about Greek mythology. In Greek mythology, we read in Hesed about the birth of the gods. And he writes, from chaos came forth Erebus and black night, but of night were born either and day, whom she conceived and bore a union in love with Erebus, and earth's first bore starry heaven equal to herself to cover her on every side, and to be an ever sure abiding place for the blessed gods. And she brought forth long hills, graceful haunts of the goddess nymphs who dwell among the glens of the hills. She bore also the fruitless deep with its raging swell, Pontus, without sweet union of love, but afterwards she lay with heaven and bore deep-swirling Oceanus, Coreus, and Crius, and Hyperion, and Ipidus, Thea, and Rhea, Thermis, and Menosyne, gold-crowned Phoebe, and lovely Tethys. After them was born Kronos, the wily, youngest and most terrible of her children, and he hated his lusty sire. So notice what's happening so far. None of these names are Zeus. 
And remember, in Homer, Zeus is the ultimate god. He reigns above all. But in this story, he's not even born yet. The gods themselves, they form out of chaos. There's this primordial chaos from which everything spawns. The entire earth spawns from this. The earth is spawned before Kronos. And if you are a scholar of Greek religion or just interested in it, you'll know that Kronos is actually Zeus's father. So Rhea loves Kronos, and they start having these children. But Kronos is let in on a secret that his son is the one day going to overthrow him. So as soon as they have any birth to any children, Kronos eats them. He, he eats all his children, and Rhea, she doesn't like this. And so as soon as Zeus is about to be born, the youngest of all their children, she instead hands him a blanket wrapped in the stone rather than the newborn Zeus, and he swallows that whole. He eats the stone, and he doesn't even care to stop to figure out if it tastes like stone or tastes like child, something like that. And all the other children are still in his belly. Zeus grows up mightily fast and then overthrows his father, opens up his stomach, and frees all his siblings. Therefore, Zeus takes precedence in the Olympus, in the Council of the Gods. He's the strongest of all of them, and he overthrows his father for supremacy. And his father was only supreme due to his might against the gods from which he came, or the primordial chaos from which he was spawned. Now these origins are very interesting. Zeus was not always existent. In the Bible, Yahweh always exists. Yahweh precedes the other gods. Yahweh is not spawned. He's not spawned from a primordial chaos. You don't find that type of legends in the Bible. Yahweh is unborn, unspawned, and always existing, depending how you take these everlasting phrases, that he's from everlasting to everlasting, and he's always been the supreme God. There's never a time where he was being ruled over, and never a time where there was like a struggle for power, where another God won, supplanted him, or he supplanted another God. In that sense, the Jews, Israelites, they said God is one, there's only one God, and that's Yahweh, because he's the supreme over all divine creatures, and there's never any rival for power. A lot of people, when they think about Zeus, they think about perhaps the legends about him, about his various promiscuities. Hercules was claimed to be a son of Zeus. Zeus had sex with a human being and spawned this demigod. And you had these demigods running all over because Zeus had a lot of lusts, and he would find human women, and he'd turn into creatures like bulls and eagles and then have sex with them as the creature. It gets really weird. And this is one of the reasons why the later Greeks, they rejected these legends in favor of spiritualizing the text, just ignoring the text, making us say something different. Because Homer, Hesod, were held in high esteem, so you have to do something with the embarrassing stories. you got to reinterpret them. So modern readers, we might have these weird notions about Zeus, that Zeus was just like this bad, evil guy that no one respected and just did a bunch of wicked stuff. But when you're actually reading Homer, all the language about Zeus is a lot more reverent. It's a lot more giving honor to Zeus. Zeus, of course, is the god of the strangers. Zeus will protect those in need. Zeus is a sky god who controls the weather. He's called the Aegis Bearer, and the Aegis is either like a spear or a piece of armor or something 
that we're not quite sure what it means, but he's always the Aegis Bearer. He's the Cloud Commander. He controls the Lightning, and he views Oaths. That's one of the things. He is broad seen. He has far vision, and he knows everything that happens on Earth. He's very wise, very wise. So when people are thinking internal thoughts, he's able to figure out their plans and their schemes, even though the other gods will scheme against him. He'll figure out their schemes before those schemes come to fruition, and he'll foil them. He'll step in, and he will put up roadblocks and expose their plots. And so a lot of times, in Homer especially, you see oaths given in front of Zeus. In the Bible, you find this too. And in the New Testament, you often find the refrain that, let's not swear to God. The idea was that when you make a promise and you swear to God, God would be the enforcer of that promise. Yahweh would. So people would swear on the name of Yahweh. Yahweh was a witness to the oath. And then Yahweh would be the ultimate enforcer. In the New Testament, they said, no more of that. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. But Zeus served a similar fashion. All the oaths were given in front of Zeus, and Zeus was expected to perform justice if that oath was broken. This, of course, is a function of both Zeus's omniscient nature, where he sees everything, and also of his justice. Zeus was widely seen as a god of justice, a god that could be trusted, a god that we wanted to be in control of things, and his will was unopposed. He would make determinations, he'll make decrees, and those decrees would happen as he would say they would because he's a powerful God and would ensure that those would happen. In that sense, he is much like Yahweh. Yahweh sees everything, knows everything, has plenty of power, is just, and was expected to right the wrongs of the earth. You see a lot of parallel concepts coming up here. So, What's going to happen to the language about Zeus, and how is it going to mirror the Bible if both gods, Zeus and Yahweh, are said to know everything, be protectors of those who are weak or in trouble, and just generally be the supreme god? I'm going to start this with a quote by Philemon, who was a Greek around about 350 BC to 250 BC, and he was a comedian. But he wrote this, and just, just listen to how this is phrased. And if this was found in the Bible about Yahweh, all the classical theists, all the Arminians and Calvinists, they would flip their ever-loving mind. This is what's said about Zeus. This is Zeus talking in this account of Zeus. He that has knowledge of what each one does, or will do, or has done in the days gone by, be it God or man that does it, I am he, heir, if you like it better, call me Zeus. Now, as befits a god, I am everywhere. Whoa, this is, this is about Zeus. Remember, this is the Zeus that contends with other gods, who was born into humanity, who overthrew his father, who the other gods conspire against. And this omniscience that's applied to Zeus is things that have been done, things currently being done, things that will be done, and a sense of omnipresence. What did the author mean by this? Was he rejecting all of Homer? I don't think so. Was he rejecting all of Hesod? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. This statement is being applied to a created being in the context of Greek mythology. And if this was applied to Yahweh in the Bible, they would say, oh, look at this, complete omniscience of all events, forever in the past and forever in the future. But in context, 
Zeus doesn't have knowledge of all events ever to happen in the future. And this is more probably like Zeus knows everything that's going on, everything that's happened, and knows what's going to happen in the immediate future, not necessarily a million years into the future. That's probably not what's being communicated here. But just note the language. Again, he that has knowledge of what each one does, or will do, or has done in the days gone by, be a god or a man that does it, I am he. This is Zeus. Zeus talking. This is not negative theology. Uh, this is not claiming that Zeus is uh, immutably perfect, uh, simple being with pure actuality. It's not claiming that. It's not claiming that. Turning to descriptions of Zeus and Hesod, the eye of Zeus, seeing all and understanding all, beholds these things too. If so, he will, and fails not to mark what sort of justice this is that the city keeps within it. So Zeus in this passage is said to be all-seeing, omniscient, right? In Hesod, Zeus is approached by Prometheus, and Prometheus wants to trick Zeus. And this is what the text read. But Zeus, whose wisdom is everlasting, saw and failed not to perceive the trick. And in his heart, he thought mischief against mortal men, which also was to be filled. So Zeus is seen through a scheme, a trick of Prometheus, based on his everlasting wisdom. So just pretend these statements were applied to God in some context. They were applied to Yahweh. Calvinists would take this as negative theology, uh, knowledge of a complete future. They, they won't even stop to think twice about what's going on here. And in context, Zeus is coming to perceive a trick that's going to be tried to be played against him because Prometheus doesn't believe that Zeus has complete omniscience of all future events. Prometheus isn't under that assumption, and we don't get from the author that anyone's under that presumption. Not even the author of this is under that presumption, but Zeus is able to see through schemes that are currently brought in front of him because of his wisdom. Check this out. This goes to Zeus's sovereignty. You know, Calvinists are obsessed with sovereignty. Very similar phrases are assigned to Zeus. But for those who practice violence and cruel deeds, far-seeing Zeus, that's omniscient Zeus, the son of Kronos, ordains a punishment. Often even a whole city suffers for a bad man who sins and devises presumptuous deeds. And the son of Kronos lays great trouble upon the people, famine and plague together, so that a man perishes away and the women do not bear children and their houses become few through the contriving of Olympian Zeus. See, Zeus's will is absolute. And we see a lot of similar terms that Calvinists use applied to Zeus. His will uh, cannot be opposed. He proclaims, he determines, he decides, and predestines things, basically. <laughs> it, it's funny, but it's not in this absolute sense that the Calvinists want to ascribe to Yahweh. It's not. And you can just see that from the text. It says the son of Kronos. This is assuming all the mythology about Zeus into the story. He's a created being. He's not eternally simple, perfect, whatever crazy negative theology that the Calvinist wants to bring to the text. It's just not here. Here's another general justice claim about Zeus. For whoever knows the right and is ready to speak for it, far-seeing Zeus, which is omniscient Zeus, gives him prosperity. But whoever deliberately lies in his witness and forswears himself and so hurts justice and sins beyond repair, that man's generation is left obscure thereafter. See, Zeus is watching mankind and Zeus is controlling things. He's sovereign and he's punishing the wicked. And keep in mind, this is the Greek perception of Zeus. It's reverence. It's reverence and expectation of justice. And Zeus is a supreme, wise, 
all-knowing, powerful, and no one can oppose him. And Zeus does whatever he wants on earth unopposed. His will stands, and the good and bad that befall a city is Zeus's hand. That was all Hassad that we just went over. Now let's turn to the Iliad. Let's see what Homer writes about Job. And Job, that would be the Latin or Roman name for Zeus. Same people, the Iliad, the Odyssey, we have Latin versions, and the Latin versions tend to use the Latin names. So you might see Son of Saturn. You might see Job. You might see Jupiter. All names for Zeus found within the Iliad using the Latin or Roman names. Let's read kind of the statements and phrases attributed to Zeus. He's the Lord of Council. He's the God of the Immortals. He lives in Olympus. There's the throne, the throne of Zeus, who wields the thunder. He reigns over the immortal gods. He's the Lord of Council. He's the lightning's Lord. If such is his will, he might hurl us from our seats. You know, great is his power. So great is his power. Zeus designs things in secret. He has fierce anger. From Zeus proceeds all honor. He dwells on high in the clouds, the darkness, the veil. His will stands supreme. This is pretty regular language about Zeus within just the Iliad. You know, this is Homer writing about a god who is spawned from a greater god who then he overthrew to overtake things. And listen to this language. O father Jove, uh, Zeus, who rules from Ida's height, most great, most glorious, and thou son who seest and hears all things, rivers and the out, thou earth, and you who after death beneath the earth your vengeance wreck on souls of men forsworn. So he's saying, you're omniscient, Zeus. You see all the things and you have vengeance on people who die, people who are dead beneath the earth. When people pray to Jove, when people pray to Zeus, they lift up their eyes to heaven because not only does Zeus live in Mount Olympus in the council of the gods, he's also in heaven. So there's a lot of phrases like people put their hands towards Zeus, meaning they lift their hands up. They pray with their eyes uplifted to heaven and they say, hey, have mercy on me, hear my prayer and do justice. You get those types of prayers within the Iliad. Of course, you get those small phrases just just out of nowhere, people will be talking about Zeus and they'll just call him the all-seeing Jove, the all-seeing Zeus, the omniscient Zeus. Just these random phrases attributed to him throughout the text. You find that in Hesod, you find that in other authors. It's just this reverent way of talking about Zeus that you find throughout the text. And none of this is platonic omniscience. If any of these phrases would be attributed to Yahweh in the Bible, the negative theologians would be all over it. Especially our first quote that we read, where Zeus knows everything that had happened in the past, is currently happening, and will happen in the future. The statements about Zeus's infinite wisdom. But again, no one in ancient Greece believed in total omniscience of all things in the Calvinistic sense, where it's a pure act and it's inherent knowledge in God's being. It's not a passive knowledge. Instead, they understood that Zeus had all-seeing eyes. He could see everything on earth. And he used his great wisdom to figure out things that were going to happen. And he used his will and his power to make things happen. In that way, he was sovereign over the earth and he controlled all things. And that's the picture of Zeus in Hesod, in Homer, and the early playwrights. Now, I'm not trying to say Yahweh is equivalent to Zeus. I'm not trying to do that. There are marked differences between 
Homer, and Yahweh. And of course, we've touched on one of the biggest ones is Zeus is a created being. He is spawned from another god, and then he takes supremacy. Whereas Yahweh has always been supreme, has always existed, and wasn't spawned from this primordial chaos. But Yahweh, like Zeus, is said to watch all things, perform justice on earth, and intervene in the lives of people based on their prayers. He's said to live in heaven. He's also said to live on Mount Zion simultaneously, kind of like Zeus is said to be on Mount Olympus and also in heaven. Yahweh also reigns over an angelic council that we find in Job and in Kings. Zeus reigns over the council of the gods. People come to this council, human beings, they fly up to this council to meet with the gods sometimes within these books. And you, you find examples of this also in the Bible where people are brought into the council of God. They're brought into the courtroom of God and they see God sitting on his throne, surrounded by his angels, and they're able to interact with God. Zeus, of course, is attributed actions like having sex with people, having the sex drive, spawning all these kids with other gods. You don't find that with Yahweh. Yahweh's not spawning multiple children with human beings. Even in the case of Jesus, there's no sexual encounter that's involved in this event. Mary is a virgin and conceives a child supernaturally without physical carnal relations. We find similar idioms, turns of phrases that are attributed to both Zeus and to Yahweh. In the Iliad, it writes, henceforth, everything shall be well if Zeus permits. I, I'm, uh, I'm paraphrasing because my translation uses some, some old English. So it'd be like me doing the New King James. But Paul says, Lord willing. Iliad says, if Job permits, if Zeus permits. Also talks about being kept safe by Zeus's hand, which hand, of course, is a metaphor for power. And it's used of King David. It's used of Yahweh. It's not an anthropomorphism. You're not going to take Zeus, who is envisioned as a bodily creature, and then say that this is an anthropomorphism being applied to Zeus. No, that's not what's going on here. This is just a normal metaphor. Normal metaphor. And that's another thing to keep in mind, that all these things that are called anthropomorphisms in the Bible, if they're applied to anyone else other than Yahweh, they'd just be known as a metaphor, which should signal to anyone who's paying attention that anthropomorphism is a made-up concept and it's being imposed on the Bible for a very specific, theologically biased reason. It's not a real thing. Of course, both Zeus and Yahweh are said to be incomparable. No god can rival them. I'm going to go over an instant real quick in the Iliad, where the different gods are trying to scheme to overthrow Zeus. And this is what is written. And thus to Neptune, mighty god, she spoke. This is talking about Juno. O thou of boundless might, earth-shaking god, See thou unmoved the ruin of the Greeks. She's saying, look at these Greeks, they're getting destroyed here. Yet they in Aegea and Hellas with grateful offerings, rich thine altars crown. She's just saying, these guys are giving you a lot of sacrifices. Then give we them a victory if we all who favor Greece together should combine. She's saying, all of us gods who favor Greece in this war, we should combine our might and then we'll overthrow Zeus to put to flight the Trojans and restrain all-seeing Jove. You see that all-seeing Jove, the omniscience of Jove, he might be left alone on Ida's summit to digest his wrath. So Juno is saying, although this Jove guy, he's he's really powerful. If we all just like gang up against him, if we all combine our might, we're, we'll be able to overthrow him. 
And this, this is what Neptune says. And he says, O Juno, rash of speech, what words are these? I dare not counsel that we shall all join against Saturn's son. That's Kronos' son. That's Zeus. That's Jove. So much stronger is he. Zeus is incomparable. Zeus is supreme, not because it's like inherent and he's perfectly ununderstandable, perfectly simple, incomprehensible, nothing like that. Like when you get statements of comparability with Yahweh, and theologians automatically just turn to negative theology to try to explain what's going on in the text. That's not what's happening here in the passages that are attributed to Zeus. It's based on his power. Zeus is unopposed. Zeus can't be overthrown because he's just so powerful. And really, a lot of those same comparability phrases about Yahweh are about Yahweh's power. Yahweh is just so powerful, no one's going to oppose him. No one's going to be able to override his will. It's not that people can't persuade him. People pray to Zeus also in the Iliad. And they don't think that just because Zeus determines things and controls all things that their petitions don't matter. Like when Calvinists see power acts attributed to Yahweh that he can be unopposed and then he controls things. They think, see, that's it. Man can't do anything. We can't prevail against God. He's got it all under control and he's doing whatever he wants. That's not the idea. That's not the idea going on here in the Iliad. It's not the idea going on in the Bible. God controls all things, but he's reasonable. So make your petition. He might listen to you. Just a really quick side point here. Zeus is a created creature. He wasn't always omniscient. He came into existence at a point of time and then acquired omniscience after that. And so when people come to the Bible and then they see instances like in Genesis 18 where God doesn't know what's going on in Sodom, and then they turn to other texts where God does know everything, God's said to see everything, they think that one text is going to override the other. Well, there, there's another possibility. First of all, it could be a generalization, a hyperbole. But it also could mean that Yahweh decided to know everything after the point of Genesis 18. You know, acquired omniscience. That's just ruled out by people when they're reading the Bible. Rather than being a valid option, that would equally explain the text more so than just overriding the text with presupposed theology. Like at the time of Genesis 18, God's like, well, I'm not do giving surveillance to the entire earth. Then afterwards, he's like, well, maybe I should start surveilling the entire earth. And then he gains omniscience. That's disallowed by modern theologians. For what reason? Because they want God's attributes to like be constant and consistent. And they, they don't like possibilities in the nature of God. They want, they want something absolute, which, which is a weird concept. It's a weird concept. It's not a Christian concept. It's not a Jewish concept. But of course, these Greek gods became very much of an embarrassment. And Plato writes about these stories. He's saying, these are really terrible. And this is in his Republic. He's like, I would ban these stories about the gods if I could. And supplant them with what? And Plato really advocated like a supreme immutable god. And he spawned what's known as Platonism, which came to its pinnacle during the Neoplatonist time after Christ, after Christ. And Plato lived somewhere between like 430 BC to 350 BC, and he was criticizing Homer. But Homer had his defenders, and even some of the defenders were Platonists who were followers of Plato. And they said, you know, Plato, you kind of got the wrong understanding of what's going on here. This is not to be taken seriously, it's not to be taken literally, and we need to spiritualize the text. Let's read Plutarch real quick, this is pretty funny. He says, 
Let us begin with the beginning and creation of the whole universe, which Thales of Milesian refers to the substance water. And let us see whether Homer first discovered this when he said, even to the stream of old Oceanus prime, origin of all. After him, Xenophanes of Colophon, laying down the first elements were water and land, seems to have taken this conception from the Homeric poems. To dust and water turn all ye who here ingloriously sit. You know, he's, he's quoting Homer, and he's making it say these uh, stupid concepts about the origins of the universe. You know, see how he's proof texting? Plutarch's saying, yeah, Homer, he got it right. He had all this wisdom, and we just have to read him correctly. And are you ready for this? This is going to be really painful. This is going to be really painful. This is from Heraclitus, and it's not to be confused with Heraclitus of Ephesus. This is Heraclitus writing in the first century in the time of Christ. And he writes this, It is a weighty and damaging charge that heavens brings against Homer for his disrespect of the divine. If he meant nothing allegorically, he was impious through and through, and sacrilegious fables loaded with blasphemous folly run riot through both epics. He said, if this wasn't figurative stuff, this is just terrible, terrible stories. And so on, if one were to believe all that is said in obedience to the poetical tradition without any philosophical theory of underlying allegorical trope, Homer would be Samanoeus or Talantus, with tongue unchastened, a most disgraceful sickness. So look at that, look at that. So if, if, if Homer was serious, it just... Really, really terrible stuff he's saying. He's so, so what does he do with the text? And let's just read like his first intro, what he says about the text. So let's just read here real quick. MV, always vile and malicious, has not even spared the opening of the first book. It has a good deal to say about the anger of Apollo. I'm going to skip forward here. Looking carefully at the truth underlining these lines, I believe they do not describe Apollo's anger, but the misfortune of a plague, which is spontaneous rather than divinely sent disaster. It is one that happens both then and on many occasions besides, and ravages humanity even in our own day, that Apollo is identified with the sun, and that one god is honored under two names is confirmed both by the mystical doctrines taught by the secret initiations and by popular and widely quoted line, the sun's Apollo and Apollo the sun. So he's saying every time that the Iliad and Odyssey talk about Apollo, it's really talking about the sun and it's describing natural phenomena. It's not actually talking about these different gods because these different gods don't exist and they don't do the things that are ascribed to them. It, it's being overridden. It's all allegory. This podcast is getting long, but remember, Pulfrey also, a pupil of Plotinus, a Neoplatonist, had a lot of works defending Homer. One of Pulfrey's works is entitled The Homeric Questions About the Iliad, and this was written before he became a Neoplatonist, but even afterwards, he writes on the Cave of the Nymphs, where Homer talks about this cave, uh, portal between heaven and earth, basically, where the gods and men, they come through, and he says that this is about the spiritual ascent. So he takes Homer and reinterprets Homer in Platonic terms, in Platonic senses. The Neoplatonists, during the time of Augustine, did the same thing to the Iliad, the Odyssey, Homer's work, that Augustine, at the same time, was doing to the Bible. Just taking the phrases and the stories and rejecting them and imposing their own theology on the text. Like these Calvinists nowadays, the James Whites of the world, the Matt Slicks of the world, they'll say, these stories are just like framing devices. They're, they don't really mean what they say. And you just got to understand 
that our theology takes precedence over the narrative that's being described. These people are modern day Neoplatonists doing the same thing to the Bible that the Neoplatonists did to Homer. And what validated Augustine and other early Christians, like Justin Martyr points out, that they're doing the same thing to the Bible that people do to Homer. They're doing just the same thing. This was their mentality, that they would just impose their theology on the text and reject the text. And they'd allegorize it. They'd make it spiritual. Read Philo. That's what he did. He didn't care about the Old Testament stories about God. He said, those stories aren't real. They didn't actually happen like that. And instead, they're they describing some spiritual truth. Just no respect for the text. No respect for the text. And just imagine a modern-day debate between a Homeric scholar and Porphyry, and Porphyry's getting up there and preaching the Calvinist God. And while the Homeric scholar is saying, Homer didn't believe any of these things that you're saying, and all your proof texts you're pulling out of context, um, that's not what's being said by Homer, that's not what Homer meant by it. The Porphyrys of the world, the Matt Slicks of the world, would be laughed off stage. Why are modern-day Calvinists and negative theologians, they're given free reign to make just absolutely absurd claims about the Bible that we wouldn't tolerate in any other context. We wouldn't tolerate Pulphery's just, just absolute reinterpretation of Homer to fit his own theology. We wouldn't fit the ancient Greeks just overriding all these stories about Zeus and then proof-texting to make their own concept of who Zeus was. We wouldn't tolerate that because that's just absurd on face value. What we know about the text, what we know about the legends, what we know about those writings, and those writings don't suggest anything what these philosophers are trying to bring into the text. Matt Slick, James White, John Piper, they're modern-day Pulphories. They're not honest to the text, they're not true to the text, they just impose what they want onto the text without consideration of what the text is saying. I would just love it. I'd just love to do a debate where I just take the works of Homer and then I argue that Homer was depicting this Calvinistic God. I could do it with all their same arguments that they use from the Bible. I could use it to argue that Zeus was this Calvinistic God. It'd be easy to do. You just proof text in the same manner. And what are they going to reply against it? What are they going to reply against it? Their replies to try to say that Homer wasn't writing this Platonic Calvinistic God are going to be all the same arguments that the open theists use against Calvinists. It would be hilarious. I'd be like, see my proof text here. Zeus knows everything that was and is and will be. Total omniscience. You can't argue against that. You just have to read the text. And they'd say, well, look at the context. Look at what's going on. Say, no, no, no. Look at my proof text. My proof text is a pretty, pretty clever proof text. And you're just denying the text. Oh. All right, the podcast is a little long, so I'm going to just kind of cut us off here. But if you have any questions or comments, post that on the God is Open website or start a thread in the Facebook companion page, God is Open. Thank you for listening.